You can be seated. And if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. The book of Acts, the fifth book of the New Testament, and we're in chapter 20. I trust you've had a blessed Thanksgiving, full of God's kindness, full of His good gifts, not least in rich food. It was just a few days ago that most homes had at least some people in those homes thinking about the Thanksgiving menu, pulling out old recipes, looking at new ones, considering what is going to go into what you're going to eat and what goes into each of the dishes and desserts that you're going to eat. Maybe you missed an essential ingredient in a favorite dish or dessert and you had to own it. Either it was bad or it just didn't get out onto the buffet. Or maybe you nailed a new dish. All your Thanksgiving culinary dreams came true. And, and someone asked you, someone in the family said, what's in this? Now, you can answer that a few different ways. You can keep the secrets to yourself, selfishly. Or you can give a thorough response, which is just to hand over the recipe. Something you printed from the web, something you ripped out of a magazine, or something you keep on a 3 by 5 card. But probably most common is simply to highlight some of the ingredients, the necessary ingredients that go into this new meal or dish. Things that might be surprising or unexpected or undetected. Well, as we come to Acts 20 today, I want to highlight some of the necessary ingredients in the mission of the church, according to this passage. Acts 20 doesn't contain everything that could be said about the mission or about what a healthy church is or what the true church is. In fact, throughout church history, there have been varied lists or summaries describing what the church is, describing what the church does, describing what the true church is and does. You've got in Acts 2, verse 42, what we sometimes call the four pillars of the early church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and prayer. That's one way of describing what the church does. The Belgic Confession in 1561 suggested that there are three marks of the true church. There's the right preaching of the word, the right administration of the sacraments, and this might surprise you, church discipline, the three marks of the true church. More recently, just in the last couple of decades, Mark Dever has helpfully enumerated nine marks of a healthy church. All of those are summaries. They're, they're more like summaries than they are like recipes. More could be said more is there in God's word than those things, but, but summaries are useful. Bullet points serve to draw attention and clarify. And so in the first half of Acts 20, there are at least seven necessary ingredients in Paul's mission. Other ingredients could be drawn from elsewhere in Scripture, you could even create a bigger list from this very passage, but seven will sufficiently occupy our time this morning. Let's read our passage, the first half of Acts 20, starting in verse 1. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples 
And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions, he had given them much encouragement. He came to Greece. There he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secondus and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him. And taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Medellin, and sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos. And the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. And we'll stop there. Let me point out the structure of this passage before we get into our outline for today. If you would, look down in your Bibles. If you have a Bible that has paragraph breaks in the text, you'll notice that we've got three sections. You have verses 1 through 6, which scholars call a travel log. It's describing travel plans or travel events. If you look down at the bottom section, verses 13 to 16, we have another one of those travel logs. It's comings and goings. And then in the middle, verses 7 to 12, there's a single scene. One long night in an upper room in Troas. Now normally at Desert Springs in a sermon here, this would be our outline. We would have a three-point outline because there are three parts to the passage as far as literary structure goes. And by the way, let me just say parenthetically, I love this church. I love being your preaching pastor here. I love that if a preacher here is going to break from the literary structure of the passage, he's going to have some explaining to do. You notice things like that. You notice when someone says, uh, here's some points I want to talk about, and it feels like it's not quite what is there in the passage. Well, let's acknowledge the structure of this passage being threefold, and yet let me also make a little atypical move for us today and instead draw out 
seven themes that I think are important for us to see. Seven themes, one word each. The first is departures. At the beginning and end of our passage, we have departures, comings and goings, travels, we might call them. Of course, this is a huge theme in the book of Acts, especially starting in chapter 7 when the gospel begins to go out from Jerusalem into the surrounding areas. Then the gospel just keeps spreading and spreading. The messengers just keep going and going. That's the plan. Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And it has to keep going and going. And so when we come to Acts 20, we're seeing more of the same. In fact, a lot of it. There are approximately 25 different verbs in these 16 verses for moving or traveling or arriving. You have departing and setting sail and leaving and arriving and going on and coming to. Now, Paul had enjoyed a relatively long and fruitful time in the city of Ephesus right before this. For three years, he was planted there. No doubt after three years, Ephesus and this church would have been familiar, and indeed, it was fruitful. Therefore, it would have been, we imagine, hard to leave. In fact, we'll see that very thing next week when Paul gives his farewell to the Ephesian elders and there are a lot of tears. But he had to move on. He had to move on because he had this twofold goal in mind the spread of the gospel and the strengthening of all the churches that he had contact with. The gospel is supposed to spread. We get that from Acts 1 8, like I said, but we also get it from Paul's line in Romans. Romans 15, there he says, I made it my ambition to preach Christ not where Christ was already named. He wants to do pioneer work. He wants to go where Christ is not yet known. And that's why he needs to go. And he needs to strengthen those churches that he's already been a part of in a founding role. You got to go. Not all of us. But some of us do. We have to be careful to not over-apply Paul's unique role. He was a missionary. He was an apostle. It wouldn't be wise for local church pastors to move on down the road or to the next city or region every three years. Though, sadly, I think that is the average in our country. It wouldn't be wise for missionaries every few years or, in Paul's case, even sometimes just a few months to think about another city and another city and in another city. No, Paul believes in planting churches in the next city, but he also believes in establishing leadership in those places, and hopefully that leadership stays there. When Paul speaks his farewell words to the Ephesian elders, which we'll see next week, we'll see that he intends very well for them to... Just stay there and keep plodding along in the shepherding of that local church. So Paul believes in long-term ministry in single churches, but for him, he also is intent on the gospel spreading and him strengthening those gospel churches that 
exist. He's in a unique situation. In fact, Acts records this special time when God was microwaving the growth of the church in its infancy. And Paul is really running to keep up with Jesus as he's planting these churches and growing them. But it's still hard to leave, whether you're the Apostle Paul or whether you're our next missionary or church plant. It's hard to leave. It's hard to go. It's hard to send. It was hard for us to plant Christ Church in downtown Albuquerque over a year ago. Uh, they're still in town. We still see them. You can call your friend up. You can text them and get together. But how many of us lost a dear, close friend in a sense that we don't see them as much? And that's, that's a sacrifice, even a small one. It was hard to send off a couple of families to North Africa a few years ago. But they're there for the gospel. The gospel's not there. The gospel has to get there, and someone has to go. And praise the Lord, two families were willing to go. And praise the Lord, the rest of us were able to fund them going. It'll be hard if one day one of my adult kids moves to Iraq or Afghanistan or Zimbabwe. That'll be hard. But we Christians should have a good grasp on these kinds of departures. And Paul helps us with an extreme sacrificial model of hard but right and needed departures. The second theme is encouragement. Encouragement. Why did Paul move on from Ephesus? Well, I said the spread of the gospel and the strengthening of those gospel churches. And we've seen Paul do the latter of those many times before in the book of Acts. You can just thumb back and find in chapter 13 and 14 and 15, then again in 16 and 17. He circles back to existing churches to check in on how they're doing and strengthen what's there, to encourage them to keep going. And that's what he's doing here. Before he leaves Ephesus, verse 1, he gathers those Ephesian disciples, and after encouraging them, he says farewell. In verse 2, he went through those regions then, giving them much encouragement. What regions? Well, the region of Macedonia, where there are cities like Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. And then the region, which he calls Greece here, just south of Macedonia which had that important city, Corinth. Now, not all these cities and all their churches were in the exact same place spiritually. Some were more mature, some less mature, more problematic, less problematic. But they all need encouragement, much encouragement. And so Paul has to go. He has to travel. What comes to mind when you hear that word, encouragement? Attaboy? A punch on the arm, uh, an affectionate handwritten letter on nice stationery, compliments, it may be some of that. But this word in the Greek behind the English word encouragement means a whole lot more than our English word encouragement. 
It can range from comfort and counsel to exhortation and admonishment. Sure, it meant passing words of affirmation from the Apostle Paul, but it also meant instruction, preaching. Literally, it says here, he gave them much word. Isn't that great? Much word. They needed encouragement. He needed encouragement. We find in 2 Corinthians 7 that around this very time, Paul was wrestling with discouragement. He says, when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. We were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God comforts the downcast. There was a plot against Paul around this time. He had just left a city where he was the focus of a citywide riot in Ephesus. And now he's circling back to cities and regions where not long ago he had left them because the heat was too hot, the threat was too great. And he's going back because, again, they need encouragement and they need to learn to encourage each other. That's part of what he's up to. And Paul goes there to encourage them and teach them how to encourage each other for his own encouragement. Paul finds encouragement in their spiritual well-being. If we had the time this morning, we could at this point go to his letters, the epistles, and see these very things. The ways in which he's encouraging them, how he's showing them to encourage each other, and the encouragement he gets from their spiritual encouragement. So let's take note. Christian, we need encouragement. We need encouragement. Let's receive it wherever it happens, whenever it happens, however it happens. In the preaching of God's word, in community groups, in one-on-one -on -one conversations, or in classrooms. Let us be a church that is easily encouraged and not easily offended. Wouldn't that be great? Not easily offended, but easily encouraged. We need to give encouragement. That's not just the work of apostles and missionaries and pastors, but Paul says to the Thessalonians, encourage one another with these words. That was a church discouraged and perplexed with this difficult idea of some dying before the return of Christ. Paul teaches them what's true and says, encourage one another with these words. Hebrews 3 tells us, encourage each other while it's still today. Keep on encouraging. And let's be easily encouraged by the encouragement of others. Let's be an encouragement and let's be encouraged when others are encouraged and when they are encouraging for Paul, no small part of this encouragement business involves partners. Thirdly, partners. In verses 4 through 6, Luke gives us a list of Paul's ministry partners. With Paul, there's always this gospel posse around him, you could say. A couple of times he's alone, not often, though. Sometimes people are coming and going. Titus isn't in this list at this time because he's in Corinth around this time, representing Paul and caring for the church there. 
But from time to time, we get a list of who's around Paul. Some of his letters refer to who's around him and who's with him or where they're going or, or who's coming back, that kind of thing. Timothy's in this list, of course, verse 4. Paul's son in the faith, a recipient of two of Paul's letters. Luke is here, though not by name. Remember, whenever we see first-person plural in the book of Acts, the author is there. And so in verse 5, we and us begins to show up again because Luke is back with the band. There are other names in the list that are less familiar to you probably, but even their names can sometimes give us insight into backgrounds and, and how different this group was and how important they were. You see in verse 4, that name, Aristarchus, that name sounds a, a bit like aristocrat or aristocracy. And that's probably exactly what it means. This is probably a man of means and high social standing. He's so aristocratic, that's basically his name. And then right next to him is Secondus. That sounds like second, doesn't it? And rightly so, that's what it means. He was likely a former slave without a name, like Javert and Les Mis. Two, four, six, oh, one. I think that's the number. Well, this guy was just two. There was number one, head of the slaves in his department, and he was number two. You've got an aristocrat, a former slave. You've got Jews and Gentiles, all from different cities, different regions even, different dialects and cultures, but they're all united in the gospel and around the mission of the gospel. They've left home. They're traveling with the apostle Paul. And that means danger and difficulty. Thank God for gospel partners, big and small, ones in the Bible and ones that simply like the Bible. Praise God for gospel partners that are famous, infamous, and anonymous. Praise God for gospel partners of all shades and, and colors and backgrounds. Just think of what goes on on a Sunday morning around here. Every now and then, I think of the moving parts that happen on a Sunday morning. My, my ministry is really focused. It has a study, it has a pulpit, and then I'll be around if you need me. And that's about it. But, oh, how many moving parts go into simply a Sunday morning happening around here? From people doing child check-in to those who clean before and after, or those who serve a cookie in the name of the Lord. Man, it's all wonderful stuff. These are gospel partners. There's correspondence, fourthly correspondence. You see, something important is going on in the background of these verses in Acts 20 that Luke doesn't tell us about, but we can learn about because we have a bigger Bible than just the book of Acts. We have these letters that go alongside. So you see in verse 1 when it says that they were in Macedonia, well, it's from there at this very time that Paul wrote his second letter to the Corinthians. At least that's what it's called in our Bible, 2 Corinthians. For what it's worth, we actually happen to know that there were four 
letters written by Paul to the church of Corinth. Only four, only two survived. But we know that there was a letter before 1 Corinthians because Paul refers to it in 1 Corinthians. And then we know that there's another letter after 1 Corinthians that isn't 2 Corinthians because Paul refers to that one in 2 Corinthians. He calls it his severe letter. We don't know much about it other than it was a very stinging rebuke. You see, in verse 2 where it says Paul came to Greece, well, that's almost certainly Corinth. And there in Corinth, Paul wrote his magnum opus, the book of Romans, the letter to the church of Rome. Now, within these letters, we learn more detail about these very themes that we're considering, like departures and encouragements and concerns and, and partners. We see Paul's twofold concern for the, the spreading of the gospel and the strengthening of the churches. In the book of Romans, we have the greatest... I'll wait for that to stop. In the book of Romans, we have the greatest summary of doctrine that has ever been penned. From the Corinthian letters, we learn of their spiritual immaturity in 1 Corinthians. We also learn in 2 Corinthians that for a while, this Corinthian church actually rejected the apostle Paul and followed after false teachers. But there was repentance and restoration. And so Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, affirmation, encouragement, warmth, and further pleas to keep, keep clinging to him, keep following him and his teaching, and more importantly, follow the Lord. He's thankful for their repentance. Listen to this in 2 Corinthians 7, where Paul says that Titus told us of your longing your mourning, your zeal for me. Remember, this is after they'd rejected Paul for a while. So I rejoice still more, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, that's his missing letter, the severe letter, I don't regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. We could stop there and just note, what if we didn't have this paragraph? What if this wasn't in our Bibles? We've asked that question of the book of Acts before. What if the book of Acts wasn't in our Bibles? What would we be missing? Well, you can ask it on a smaller level. There are some paragraphs. We don't have this. Well, we can piece it together, but, but not so easily. Here is the paragraph on distinguishing between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow, true repentance and false repentance. Praise God for this paragraph. What if we did not have the negative and positive example of the Corinthian church with all their horrible sins in 1 Corinthians, with all of their rejection of the apostle in between 1 and 2 Corinthians, and with their repentance shown to us in 2 Corinthians. Thank God for the Bible. It's many facets. It's, it's complexities. It's complementary relationship from part to part. Thank God that he preserved for us this, 
correspondence. I hope you love the Bible, Christian. All of us wish we read it more. All of us wish we loved it more. All of us wish we understood it better than we do. But I hope you love it. I hope you're growing in it. I hope when you read Psalm 119, that love letter about the Word of God, that you're simultaneously convicted because that's not you. That's not always you anyway. And you're also just invigorated, excited to turn the page, excited to to get back to the Word, get back to a steady diet of milk and meat that is God's Word and is what we need. I encourage you, if you've been away from the Bible and away from the habit of reading the Bible, that today you would remember a time, a season of your life when your heart burned within you when the Lord opened up his word to you. You'd long for it and pursue it. Related to that is this one scene in our passage in an upper room in Troas, verses 7 to 12 could call it the theme of preaching, preaching. Recall how verses 1 and 2, Paul encouraged the churches that he traveled to. He he gave them much word. You might wonder what that could look like. Well, one night in the upper room in Troas might give you at least one indication. Yes, it was a special night for sure. Something very unusual happened there. But it does paint a picture of the typical word-centeredness of the Apostle Paul. Let's read it again. It's so good. Look at verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. Now, this is masterful storytelling by Luke. You can almost feel yourself in this room if you try just a bit. Paul and his friends have been in Troas for a week now, and this is their last night of the stay. They will leave in the morning. No doubt Paul had been teaching in various contexts throughout the whole week, but now here on the Lord's Day, they assemble the church together, knowing it's his last night with them, This is important. Everyone's there. They're gathering surely in the biggest room of the biggest house of the Christians there. And it's still way overcrowded. We know that because some people are sitting in windowsills. We know it's late and it's dark and it's hot because everyone has their lamp with them. Luke tells us this detail probably to paint the picture of the fragrance of oil burning Perhaps the lack of oxygen with oil burning like this. And probably the heat involved with so many lamps in one room. 
You know what happens when it's crowded, when it's hot, and when it's late. And Paul has been at this teaching thing for a good while now, and he's still going strong. It's getting past people's bedtime, and then by midnight, surely, it's past everyone's bedtime. And you see little Eutychus, probably age 10, 11, somewhere between 8 and 14, according to this one word in the text. You see him sitting in a window. That's a good spot. You get a little bit of breeze there. But it's still hot in there. And Paul's still going. Verse 7, he prolonged his speech until midnight. Verse 9, he talked still longer. Little Udy has been listening well. That's what I call him, little Udy. Little Udy's been listening well for a good while now, but his head is nodding. His eyelids weigh a thousand pounds. He sank into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep. We can all relate, can't we? I see this all the time. (laughs) I get a great window into this very dynamic. But we've all been there. I remember in college on a Sunday night when I had a bad head cold. Uh, We had a guest preacher coming in. Don Whitney was his name. I'd read his book on spiritual disciplines. And I really wanted to go hear Don Whitney preach. So I decided to, right before I left, take some NyQuil. And then I thought, surely it will hit afterwards. And I will just come home, fall into bed, have a great night's sleep. They could film a NyQuil commercial right here in my dorm room. Uh, But I didn't time it so well, as you might imagine. The room was warm, I was sick, the sermon went longer than I thought it would, and then the head drop, and the head drop. And I was embarrassed, it seemed like he was staring right at me, focused on this silly college student who really should have stayed home, uh, or is just downright rude, probably partied too late the night before. Well, I felt bad, I went and apologized afterwards to Dr. Whitney, and And he did say, well, you should have stayed home. Uh, But then he said, well, I congratulate you on your uh, courage and your commitment, and uh, you shouldn't feel bad. And I didn't feel bad after that. I thought, yeah, he's right. These are unusual circumstances, and my heart was in the right place. And I think we should think something similarly for little old Udy. Don't be too hard on Udy. I don't think Luke includes this story in the book of Acts in order to embarrass Eutychus, nor so much to warn would-be sermon sleepers. Now, that doesn't mean that this is an encouragement to sleep during sermons. No, you will not get raised from the dead if you fall out a window and die during my sermon. No, it's not an encouragement to sleep. Of course not. But it's not here to warn people, you fall asleep during a sermon, you might die. No. But, but neither is Luke, including this scene in the book of Acts, to embarrass a long-winded preacher. And I say that knowing that I'm a preacher and a long-winded one at that. I don't think it's here to warn preachers of what can happen when you go too long. No, it's not about the timing, really. It's about 
the word commitment of both Paul and his hearers. That's the point. Yes, it's a very human and real moment in the Bible. Surely Luke penned it with a bit of a smile on his face and fondness for the memory of that night. But the lesson is the word commitment, relentless word commitment of both Paul and his hearers. Notice verse 10. What happens after he fell and died? And by the way, he did die. It might look like maybe he just got knocked out and Paul just woke him up, but Luke, the physician, is writing the book of Acts and says he was taken up dead. Paul's touch is what heals by God's grace. See the gentleness Paul went down. He bent over him. And taking him in his arms, he said, don't be alarmed, for his life is in him now. And he was healed. He was restored to life. If you get a glimpse here of the Apostle Paul and his compassion and his care and his intimacy, this is like a, a Jesus-like healing. This is the kind of detail that Luke would provide for one of Jesus' healings where he, he's intimately involved and he's touching and, and he's doing affectionate things. At the end, Eutychus is alive and all is well. By the way, Eutychus, the name, means Lucky. Isn't that great? So what would you do after Lucky's alive? And it's sometime after midnight, maybe one. I mean, I'll tell you what. I'd be thinking, surely we're done now, right? I mean, a kid died, Paul. <laughs> he died. Surely we're done now. We maybe started at 6 p.m. You've gone to one. We're done? Oh, no, we're not. Paul's going up. He's going back at it. Yeah, and notice, it doesn't look like anyone's complaining. It sounds like they all went back up. Luke doesn't say, and some really rolled their eyes at this one. Some kicked the ground. Great, going back up. One guy snuck away. No, it doesn't say that. Now they go back up, and at the end of it all, the next morning, what does verse 12 say? They took the youth away alive, and were not a little comforted. The same word as encouragement or encouraged back in verse 1 and 2. They were encouraged. They were strengthened. I mean, what do you want to do after you see a death and resuscitation. Go make waffles? I mean, is that, is that the natural thing to do if you're a Christian? Or did this thing just get really serious and awesome? And you want to hear what else Paul has to say. Again, the passage doesn't blame Eutychus for falling asleep under these circumstances. Neither does it Seek to embarrass Paul for preaching so long. Both are understandable in this very human moment, but both communicate to us the centrality of the word and the ministry of the church and the need to give great effort to teach, to hear, to receive, to be encouraged. 
So what does the church do when it gathers? Well, they partake of the Lord's Supper sometimes. They pray together. They sing together. Not everything a church can do or should do is listed here in Acts 20. Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 talk about singing to each other and with each other when we're together. But preaching here seems to be central, doesn't it? In Paul's letters to pastors like Timothy and Titus, there's a centrality to the word ministry. Give attention to the public reading of Scripture. Preach the word in season and out of season. Rebuke, reprove, exhort with all long-suffering and patience. This is what the church does when it gathers. Preaching isn't the only thing, but it is the central thing. It is the most important thing. It's the, I would say it's the least optional thing. It's the thing we want to fudge on or compromise with the least. During the time of the Reformation, pulpits moved from the side of a cathedral to the center to show and demonstrate in this visible way the centrality of the preaching of the word. Not because it's about the preacher, but it's about God's word. He uses his word. And, and get this, he uses stupid, broken instruments like me to communicate that word and to bless and build his church. And that's why Paul talked. And that's why he prolonged his speech. And that's why he conversed with them a long while. And even after a kid died and was raised, he went back up, took some bread and the cup. He partook and he talked a while longer. Now, I have no intentions of starting all-night sermon vigils. You don't want that, and I don't want that. But can I just say, thank you, Desert Springs, for your care for God's Word, your endurance with God's Word, your seriousness about God's Word. May it always be so. May the Lord actually even increase it for his namesake. Not that we need to go longer, don't worry, but oh, how important it is. And that's what this all-night preaching time communicates to us. A sixth theme is what we might call Sunday. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. When did this happen, this all-night preaching vigil? Well, verse 7 says, the first day of the week. That's Sunday. This is the first mention of Sunday being the gathering of the local church day. But it's not the only mention in the Bible. In 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, Paul encourages that church to take up a collection weekly on the first day of the week. That's when they're going to be together. And in Revelation 1.10, John says he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Of course, he was alone exiled on the island of Patmos. But by the time he writes the book of Revelation, there's this category, the Lord's day. No doubt, that's Sunday. 
It's a celebration of the resurrection of Christ. And this is massively significant in light of the Old Testament teaching and teaching and teaching that for the Old Testament people, the day of worship was Saturday. For thousands of years, the day of worship for God's people was Saturday. And then at some point after the death and resurrection of Jesus, that day shifted to Sunday. N.T. Wright, a New Testament scholar, puts it like this, how big of a deal this is. He says, there's very early evidence of the Christians meeting on the first day of the week. This is hardly to be explained simply on the grounds that they wanted to distinguish themselves from their Jewish neighbors. The seventh day Sabbath, Saturday, was so firmly rooted in Judaism as a major social, cultural, religious, and political landmark that to make any adjustment in it was not like a modern Western person deciding to play tennis on Tuesdays instead of Wednesdays. It takes a conscious, deliberate, and sustained effort to change or adapt one of the most powerful elements of symbolic practice in a worldview, not least when the Sabbath was one of three things, along with circumcision and food laws, that marked out Jews from their pagan neighbors. By far the easiest explanation for this, that the day of worship became Sunday, is that all the early Christians believed that something happened on that first Sunday morning. Isn't that great? What a, an apologetic, what a defense of the faith that this movement that came out of Judaism, which we call Christianity, had this massive shift because of one weekend where Jesus died and was raised. Now, Christians are to worship God everywhere, anywhere, in everything, at all times, not just Sundays. But there is something special about Christians gathering overtly as a local body or church to celebrate the risen Christ. The Bible says that Christians individually are like temples in which God dwells. Yes, that's true, but also there's a sense in which corporately we're the temple of God. 1 Peter 2 says that each of us are like living stones that are made to go together to be a building for God's presence. And throughout the week, you can imagine the stones are scattered. They're doing their thing. It's a different metaphor than those other times. But when they come together, they're like stones that need stacking to build up and to go together and to become something for God's very presence. This is the church, and this is its gathering, and this is what we do every Sunday. You don't have to wonder whether the sermon's going to be good, whether we're going to sing the songs you want to or not. You don't have to wonder about who's leading or who's preaching or who's on vacation or who's there or who left or... This is the meeting of the church that Jesus bought with his blood. This is the dispensary of his word. This is the worship of the Christ where we join with angels in heaven and get simple foretaste of the heaven that's to come for us. Oh, it's, it's just a foretaste. And sometimes we feel the weakness, the humanness, the error, and even the sin more than we feel angels and heaven 
and glory. But don't misunderstand, this is what's happening. Read Hebrews 12 for a good reminder of that. Or, or simply just hear the instruction from Hebrews 10. Let's not neglect meeting together as some are doing. Let's keep encouraging each other. Sundays are an essential ingredient to the church. And lastly, there's giving. Giving. This is another thing that's behind the scenes. But if we piece our Bibles together from epistles and acts, we can't help but see. You see, verses 13 to 16 give us a fast-paced account of Paul's travels. It goes from Troas to Jerusalem with several stops along the way. And verse 16 tells us the reason for all this traveling. Paul was hastening to be at Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? Well, you can read about this in Romans 15 or 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Throughout this time when Paul was going about to these churches in Asia Minor and Macedonia and down in Greece, he was taking money in along the way. Money that would be used for suffering saints in Jerusalem who during these days were experiencing famine, persecution, and hence poverty. Almost a threefold intersection of trials. And Paul is concerned for them. He's concerned about their need. And, and so he's willing to raise money from the broader church in order to meet these physical needs of the Christians in Jerusalem. He's also wanting to unify the church with this statement that Gentile Christians from far away actually care about the physical needs of Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And really, he wants everyone to know that this kind of sacrificial giving to care for the needs of the saints, this is just gospel stuff. We get this from the gospel. This, this is gospel DNA. We learned this from Jesus so I encourage you to read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 today to get a picture of this collection for the Jerusalem church. But let me just read one verse to show you the gospel connection for this collection. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's that? What's, what grace? Though he was rich before the incarnation, before he became man, yet for your sake he became poor in his life and death and suffering. Why? So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. We who were born spiritually impoverished and deserving death and had no hope, we had someone step in. We had someone who was rich take our place. We had someone who had riches pay our debt. We had someone who had riches to give, give riches. Not riches that we could buy, not riches we can earn, but riches that we simply receive. If we believe what he did is true, and if we ask God for it. It's as simple as that. If you believe what God says about you and about Jesus, and you ask him for the gift of grace, that comes on account of Jesus dying in your place, then you are as rich as the Son of God. It'd be blasphemous if it wasn't in the Bible. We have no right to that of our own. 
But big brother Jesus bought it for us at great expense. And so, if we believe it, we're not only forgiven of our debt. If we're not only cleared of our guilt, we are sons and daughters of the king. His riches are ours. Do you believe that today? If you're not a Christian, you might be sitting here this morning thinking, why did I come? These are a bunch of Christians talking about what it's like to be a Christian. They really like this book. I want to get the Eutychus out of here. I wish there was a window. I'd jump out it right now. Let me just encourage you. Keep thinking with us. We understand where you are. And the Bible actually speaks to that very thing that you're experiencing. Pray. Ask God to reveal himself to you. Keep looking in the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, let us know. We would love to give you one. We'd love to start reading it with you. We would love to answer any questions you might have. We don't have all the answers. But we've been on this pilgrimage, some of us, for a while. And we have some answers. We would love to help. Let us know how we can. Christian, remember, he not only saves. He not only makes us sons and daughters. But he employs us as priests and kings to rule and to intercede. He has made us a church. He's put us together for the good of the whole and for the glory of the God who saves. Let's pray for his help to live that out until Jesus returns. Oh, Lord Jesus, we confess you as our King, our Savior, our Lord, and our friend. We stand in awe of your mercy. We stand in awe of your power. You raise the dead. And one day, you will raise us to live forever without sin, without suffering, and without death. We long for that day. We thank you for the promise of it. We thank you for your plan, Lord, to put us together in a body, in a family, to care for each other and encourage each other. May we do it more and more until we see the day when you come again. We pray in your strong and saving name, Jesus. Amen.